One of the great joys of living a curious life is the ongoing pursuit of knowledge, learning for the pleasure of learning. Well, that's what the Great Courses Plus is all about. With your subscription, you get unlimited access to stream their huge library of engaging video lectures. That's where you learn from award-winning experts about the topics that really fascinate you, like history, psychology, literature, or expand your hobbies, like cooking or photography. The Great Courses Plus has over 8,000 lectures, and they're adding new ones all the time. Best part about it is you can watch them on your schedule from any device whenever you want. And because you're listening to this podcast right now, you should probably check out the course Heroes and Legends, the most influential characters of literature. It's a fascinating look at the power of great literary heroes, from Don Quixote to Sherlock Holmes, and how they reflect the values of society at the time. And because you chose to listen to Brett Easton Ellis, you can watch this course and so many others free for a full month. You just sign up at this special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. Start your free month today. Get informed. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. I'm Rob Cisternino, the aptly named Rob Has a Podcast, where we're creating fun, smart conversation around reality TV games like Survivor. And this March, Survivor Game Changers is finally here. Join me weekdays for episode recaps, player interviews, and of course, your feedback. So if you're ready for a game change in your own Survivor experience, download Rob Has a Podcast at podcastone.com on the Podcast One app or subscribe on iTunes. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. This is our music from the bachelor's den. The sound of loneliness turned up to ten. A horror soundtrack from a stagnant to bed and it sounds just like this This is the sound of someone losing the plot Making out that they're okay when they're not You're gonna like it but not a lot And the chorus goes like this Oh baby Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker and horror aficionado, Mick Garris. So, the Oscars happened a couple of days ago here in L.A., and you will be listening to this podcast a few weeks later. And except for the truly shocking finale with the wrong best picture announced, a mortifying showbiz moment, it was mostly business as expected at the 89th Annual Academy Awards. 
Marishal Ali won supporting actor for Moonlight, though I would have gone with Lucas Hedges in Manchester by the Sea, which was a true supporting actor performance, gracing the screen for over a hundred minutes compared to the fifteen or so minutes that Ali is on, ultimately supporting no one. And even after seeing Moonlight twice, I'm somewhat confounded that this sturdy, very brief performance moved so many people. Though a saintly drug dealer acting as a father figure to a poor gay black boy was apparently a shoo-in during award season. And yet, Ali did not win the Golden Globe. Aaron Taylor Johnson, as an over-the-top, stylized, redneck villain, won that. Or the BAFTA, Dev Patel, won that. And he wasn't even nominated for an Indie Spirit Award. Ben Foster in Hell or High Water won that. So there was, in some inner circles here, a modicum of suspense in the supporting actor category. Suspense which was totally missing in Viola Davis's preordained win for Fences in the supporting actress category. This was a problematic win for a couple of reasons, the main one being that Davis and her co-star Denzel Washington had played these roles on Broadway and seemed to have not reinterpreted fully what needed to be done to have these performances work on film. This is acting with a capital A, snorting and yelling and gesturing to the mezzanine, and the camera is always too close so we can see every fleck of spit, every rage-filled expression, every bulging eye, every tear and dollop of snot. We are forced to register every ounce of regret and pathos in what seems like IMAX, and we are never allowed to forget that these actors are acting. And the play itself suffers as a movie because it wasn't thought out for the screen. It is inherently a stage piece, and we are also never allowed to forget this. On film, it's stage stuck. And unless the filmmakers were going to open it up with flashbacks, we were always going to be stuck in that yard, in that house, complete with the stagey, poetic arias supplied by the late August Wilson, who did his own adaptation. And the pretentious symbolism that works on stage, that rose or the meaning of that fence, becomes literal-minded and embarrassing on film. Davis's acting in this is almost a parody of award-style acting, and yet because Viola Davis has so much goodwill coming her way, it was her turn, as well as the fact that she helps dominate a movie where she is clearly the female lead. She's the only woman in it, and there was just no competition with her four other nominees, and she was a shoe in the moment she decided to make this movie, let's face it. I'd also like to put a moratorium on the Viola Davis acceptance speech, which seems so over-rehearsed, so over-the-top, with slowly building tears and gulps and dramatic intakes of breath that you might be inclined to offer her Xanax rather than a congratulation. The speech was so prepared in accuracy that even host Jimmy Kimmel couldn't help but quip afterwards, Viola Davis just got nominated for that speech at next year's Emmys. She gave a Best Actress speech uh, when she only won Best Supporting Actress, and I wish she could have brought some humor into all the grand dame gesturing by dropping that she had also starred in 2016's worst movie as well, Suicide Squad. Earlier in 2016, way before award season began, Davis agreed to relegate herself to the Supporting Actress category because she thought it was a safer bet for a win though she could have easily beaten all five of the actresses up this year for Best Actress, and in this climate, she would have. So I'm not sure how smart a move that was, but it opened the door easily for Emma Stone to win Best Actress for her charming work in La La Land. And yes, I know it's inconceivable that anyone other than Isabelle Huppert in Elle should win this, but hey, this is the Oscars, and everyone loves an ingenue. And it was just never going to go to a 63-year-old Frenchie playing a cold bitch who didn't seem to mind being raped.
Everyone also loved Casey Affleck this year, who was a juggernaut during award season, winning every single prize he was up for, and deservedly so for Manchester by the Sea. And yet in the final weeks leading up to the Oscars, he shockingly lost Best Actor at the Screen Actors Guild Awards to Denzel Washington. And a SAG win and the Oscars almost always go hand in hand in this category. So this was the most legitimately suspenseful award given on Oscar night. Affleck came through at the Oscars because it is a very rare and unusual performance that was the exact opposite of Denzel's huffing and puffing. Affleck was screen acting. It was a great minimalist performance, and he was wonderful in the flashbacks before the tragedy strikes that makes this husk of a man trying to keep his shit together all the more moving and compelling. Affleck gave the male performance of the year by a vast margin, but dude, at least be a little prepared and have some kind of speech ready. You don't have to orate like Viola, but it's awkward to see someone flailing into space on stage at the Kodak in what is probably going to be remembered as the pinnacle of their career. Manchester by the Sea could easily have been 30 minutes shorter, and it doesn't have a catharsis. There's no ending. It's somewhat brave in an over-emotional culture, and in the concessions that a mainstream prestige picture must conform to, that our hero admits he's unable to change, unable to get over his tragedy in the climactic scene of the movie. And as admirable as that might be, it also conversely means there's no release, and the movie doesn't vary emotionally. It's an odd experience because it's very well written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, the only director nominated this year who has actually made a legitimate masterpiece with his modern epic Margaret from a few years back. And yet it seems dead at times, or maybe just coasting. Another filmmaker would have given Affleck that big moment where he breaks down, hugs the kid, promises to take care of him and get over his shit and makes sure to enroll him in college. And we would have all been crying. But that's not Lonergan's style. And the fact that he adheres as a dramatist to what would probably have happened in reality gives the film a power and yet doesn't move it past the finish line. Manchester by the Sea leaves you both impressed and bummed. The big winner, though not nearly as big as a lot of people expected, was Damien Chazelle's La La Land, where the young denizens of today's L.A., while stuck in traffic, jump out of their cars and break into song and dance unironically the way they used to in old musicals like the 1940s, 1950s, widescreen technicolor extravaganzas, the bandwagon, singing in the rain, Easter parade, meet me in St. Louis, that are the movies La La Land is most influenced by and aspires to be a kind of contemporary equivalent to. The difference is that those movies were organic and of their cultural movie moment, while La La Land is a throwback to them, a pastiche, a movie that apes those movies. It's a movie about Los Angeles and about the movies it cribs from. And a viewer is rarely not aware of this, because even though it's part of the limitation of the movie, it's also a part of its not inconsiderable charm. The movie has a sensual analog look. In fact, it's an ode to an analog era. Movies at a revival theater, record players, cassette tapes, 80s nostalgia acts, pen and paper, all fetishized. It's about searching for authenticity and tangible feeling. And the showbiz bad guys in La La Land, the casting director, the career musician, the photographer looking for the fake pose, the narcissistic screenwriter bragging about himself, the intolerant maitre d' who only wants cheery Christmas music played in his restaurant, are the ones that don't recognize this. That opening number on the ramp leading from the west side toward Hollywood and the movie studios in Culver City and the Valley is done in one extraordinary swirling take 
that is so exhaustingly virtuosic, it does not bode well for the rest of the picture. What seems like hundreds of extras are belting out a so-so number and overselling it wildly by gyrating and flinging themselves across cars while the camera cranes and swoops over the action for an unbroken three minutes. It's glitzy and glamorous and has nothing to do with the rest of the movie we are about to watch. It simply states the movie's intentions. But this showstopper is way too much too soon, and the song isn't good enough to support the vastness of the production. It's vaguely embarrassing, and you are probably now to expect the worst. The dancers and singers in the freeway are never brought back. It's just a separate number divorced from the rest of the movie. And at times it seems like the parody for a diversity ad made by Benetton from the late 1990s. And yet, even as you might be recoiling, you can still be moved by the vision and ambition of its young filmmaker and chuckling at the tacky, giddy exuberance of it all and touched that anyone under the age of 60 had the temerity to stage the sequence. And this might be how you take in most of La La Land. What it aspires to be moves people more than the movie itself. La La Land is charming, but not that great. The movie centers on Emma Stone as a young aspiring actress who craves recognition and Ryan Gosling as a young jazz pianist longing to open his own nightclub who doesn't crave recognition. They're the millennial versions of the Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro characters in Martin Scorsese's 1977 psychodrama musical New York, New York, made when Scorsese, like Chazelle now, was in his 30s as well. But the resemblance ends there. Not only did Scorsese's movie have a couple of great songs, the title track and But the World Goes Round, and if you really want to see an electrifying number done in a single take, watch Minnelli belt this epic ballad out, and it will make Emma Stone's audition number seem like a glee outtake. But New York, New York also had adults enacting a wrenching Cassavetes-like relationship movie that encompassed love, rage, career jealousy, failure, success, children, divorce, addiction, compromise, all within a stylized, huge-budget musical framework. It was lifting the curtain on the wholesomeness and happiness pervading the post-war musicals of the late 40s and into the 1950s. And there was both an implicit love and an implicit criticism of those movies as well. And New York, New York became a movie about what was always left out after the credits rolled. And the picture has a great bummer 1970s ending as well. The characters in La La Land are around the same ages as Minnelli and De Niro. And yet Chazelle's movie never gets angry or rude or messy or violent or sexual. There's no addiction, no cheating, no shitty behavior, no sex, no pills. It's an extremely placid, even soothing experience that hums along smoothly about two really, really nice people. And unlike the young musicians and singers at Center Stage in New York, New York, there is no reason for the cast of La La Land to be belting their hearts out. It's just a thing Chazelle wanted to do, a pastiche. The milieu, the characters, the situation, the story have no reasons as for why the characters dance and sing. You just accept it. It's a given, and if you don't think too much about it, it's not a distraction. If New York, New York at times achieves the greatness of those old musicals, as it does in the spectacular VJ Day sequence in the massive nightclub where De Niro meets Minnelli that opens the movie, and in the Happy Endings movie musical number within the movie that Minnelli's now famous actress stars in, and in Minnelli singing both But the World Goes Round and a smashing rendition of New York, New York, the definitive version of the song, watch it on YouTube, it's stunning. Comparatively, La La Land is nowhere near as good as any of them. By comparison, it feels muted and tentative, and yet it's also deeply felt. No matter how lightweight it seems, 
in other words, pure millennial art. The worst numbers are out of the way first, including Emma Stone's roommates dancing and singing in the apartment, which leads to the big Christmas party with a camera swirling in a pool complete with fake snow and fireworks that is both risible and cheesily entertaining, with awkwardly choreographed dancers snapping their fingers and gyrating around the pool. The best numbers involve only Gosling and Stone, the highlight being the one that takes place with them dancing on a canyon hillside at sunset in one glorious take, a nod to the stunning sequence in the bandwagon with Fred Astaire and Sid Therese. This sequence in La La Land is sustained and legitimate movie magic, and this magic keeps popping up in La La Land from time to time, and that's what separates it from just about everything else from 2016. The movie is beautiful in an idiosyncratic way, and a true believer, a dreamer, made the movie. And we never forget it, even when the movie dips and ebbs. Why do you say romance as if it's a dirty word? Gosling, as Sebastian, asks his cynical sister at one point, challenging her. And Sebastian speaks for the movie. He's the movie's voice. After a torturous movie year, watching Gosling and Stone glide across the screen is a genuine thrill even though you may be more moved by Chazelle's longing and ambition than the sequences themselves. Miles Teller, who starred in Chazelle's previous feature, Whiplash, which was um, like an episode of Fame directed by Oliver Stone, and Emma Watson were originally going to star in La La Land until scheduling conflicts and their respective deals screwed things up, bullet dodged. Ryan Gosling has become a mock suave and accomplished comedian in a few not very good comedies lately. He's by far the best thing in both Crazy Stupid Love and The Nice Guys, and he's very funny in La La Land, but his laid-back irony takes him only so far. The little ironic gestures and the half-smiles that he knows are futile, the half-hearted attempts at leading man gravitas, makes him both winning and charming, but he seems unable to fully commit to the movie. It's like he's second-guessing it as he's shooting it, and Gosling has said he had no idea if La La Land was going to work or turn into a major embarrassment, and I think there's a reticence at times where Gosling seems to be playing it both ways in the non-singing, non-dancing scenes. Sometimes he's earnest, sometimes he seems to be parroting the character and the situation. He's effortlessly magical in his musical numbers, a true romantic lead, and he's genuinely funny in the scene where J.K. Simmons fires him from his piano playing gig at the restaurant, and perhaps even funnier when he reluctantly agrees to give that fashion photographer what he wants. Bite your lip. Yeah, that's it. Bite your lower lip. And of course, Emma Stone's wide-eyed vulnerability is always very touching. And they are the year's most likable movie couple, even though the movie is a trifle and ultimately very little is at stake. The barely there story gets by on visual mood and atmosphere, but the movie itself is dangerously thin. And yet Stone and Gosling sell the well-written casual dialogue, and seeing them wander through a never-ending magic hour in a lonely, anti-modern version of Los Angeles can warm the coldest hearts. And John Legend is good and well cast in his brief role as the career musician who forces Ryan Gosling to see the truth about where jazz is heading. The sad ending that ultimately gives the movie enough weight to let people think they are seeing a major work of art would have been more moving if it had been perhaps from the viewpoint of the emotional actress Emma Stone is playing, thinking about Ryan Gosling and fantasizing about what could have happened when they run into each other five years after they break up, because she seemed much more invested and active in their relationship than Gosling ever did. His laid-backness is always charming, but can also be an obstacle towards feeling, and since we don't really see how crazily passionate he is about her, the ending, his fantasy and longing depicted in an epic musical number of what could have been, 
is not as powerful as it wants to be. You're touched by the collision of fantasy and sad reality, but not devastated the way you might be at the end of New York, New York, or George Cukor's A Star is Born, or Bob Fosse's Cabaret, or all that jazz, for example. Especially when Gosling and Stone's breakup minutes earlier on a park bench below the Griffith Observatory is so amiable and tear-free and practical. I think part of the reason La La Land was so beloved out here Yes, out here in La La Land itself. Uh, it won the Director's Guild Award for Chazelle, and the movie won Best Picture at the Producers Guild as well, and was nominated for a record 14 Oscars while winning six, including director and actress, though picture went to Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. is It's the kind of movie that a lot of filmmakers have wanted to at one point make in their careers, and never could because the timing wasn't right, the financing wasn't there, musicals are tough to pull off and to sell to executives. And whatever the reason, but I have known a lot of creative people over the decades, myself included, who have a passion project musical somewhere on the back burner, because in so many ways, the musical is the one genre that is the easiest to have immediate emotional access to without a lot of heavy lifting. The songs, the music, the dancing do the lifting. Altman, Coppola, Scorsese, De Palma, Woody Allen have all made elaborate musicals. And part of the embrace of La La Land in Hollywood has got to be that a young director finally got a proper budget to see his fantasy project through. And it is, in this movie moment, the biggest risk of the year. It could have been a total disaster. But the great surges of feeling that occasionally break through its confectionery surface speak to a number of filmmakers and people who work in Hollywood who have always wanted to make this movie. La La Land cost $30 million to make, and worldwide it has grossed so far over $350 million. That is a blockbuster number. Why is all of this happening to this modest movie in this moment? Well, for better or worse, La La Land is the best representation of pure cinema that American movies came up with in 2016, whether you like it or not. And even though La La Land looks and sounds better than it might really be, and it's uncertain how it will date, my guess is probably not well, in this dreadful moment for the future of American movies, La La Land is both big enough to make an impression and personal enough to embrace Chazelle as an auteur. I don't love La La Land like I do Cabaret or All That Jazz or New York, New York or Nashville or the MGM musicals, or even parts of Chicago, which gets by on one of the greatest Broadway scores ever, and it didn't make my top ten of last year. But I've been rooting for it, and I'm heartened by its success. It might be too good-natured to win over the cynics, and maybe it's even a little boring, but it has a loose vibe that is unassuming and unpretentious, and it just slides by. Maybe there's no sexual tension, and it's resolutely PG-13. But after this torturous movie year, you might say to yourself after seeing La La Land, Oh, I get it. This is what 2016 was like. That's why La La Land is probably the best movie of this year to make $350 million at the box office. It's just that kind of year. We're in that kind of movie moment.
In writer-director Jordan Peele's hip new horror movie, Get Out, about black paranoia in the white world, ideology is seamlessly interwoven with genre aesthetics. And the results are scary and funny. And as everyone knows, scary funny is the best combination one can get at the movies. If you just told someone the bare-bones plot of Get Out, they might just stare at you dead-eyed and ask, are you fucking kidding me? Is this some kind of leftover relic from the Obama era? Privileged white girl takes black boyfriend to visit her upscale liberal parents at the family's mansion upstate. Dad is a neurosurgeon and mom is a psychiatrist. And the white girl calms her black boyfriend down by telling him her parents would have voted for Obama a third time if they could have. The audience is already laughing at the upscale liberal mix of white guilt and privilege. And of course, the family and most of the denizens in the town where the family resides are actually crazed racists who abduct young black men and subject them to hideous experiments, turning them into docile servants. And I am not spoiling anything here. This is pretty much revealed in the trailers. What saves Get Out from becoming only an identity politics issues movie is its belief in the tropes of the horror genre and how the tropes and the ideology play off each other, heightening both the horror and the message. The movie takes its time and refuses to fall into the cliches of the current horror genre, even though this is a movie produced by famed horror production company Blumhouse. There's a scarcity of shot cuts and boo moments, and there is not an overabundance of gore. It's a slow burn with scenes that play out quietly, and the movie finds a lot of humor in the overall situation. It's the funniest new movie I've seen in a very, very long time, as well as locating the scares often in the same scene. But one doesn't cancel out the other, as you sometimes get nervous it might. They coexist pleasurably. This is a very difficult tonal thing to pull off, and I don't know if Peel could have nailed it without the cast he assembled. Allison Williams, Catherine Keener, Caleb Landry-Jones, Bradley Whitford, Keith Stanfield, and especially young British actor Daniel Kulaya as Chris, the black boyfriend, and I hope I pronounced that name right, who holds the whole thing together. He's in just about every scene, and you might remember him from Sicario. This is a tricky part, overdue the double takes and the mounting disbelief at the situation he finds himself in, and things could become a joke. He brings a subtlety to the picture and grounds the outlandishness of the concept into a movie that seems both bizarre and real. By the time we get to the kind of dumb non-explanation as to why this is all happening, why the plot against the black men exists, we are already so completely on the side of this character that not only do we buy it, at least on its semi-ridiculous movie terms, But it also wasn't surprising to hear cheers from the audience I saw the movie with during its last quarter as Chris starts to navigate his escape. He's also remarkable in the movie's best scene with Catherine Keener, just the two of them in her study late one night as she slowly, casually hypnotizes him. Supposedly, the shrink is going to help Chris stop smoking, and the conspiracy begins. Is Get Out being overrated? It has a rare 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yes, of course it is. And I find it hard to believe that anyone going to see it is going to get woke by this low-budget amusement, an idea the entertainment press is pushing hard in its overwhelmingly positive coverage of a movie that could have easily been a skit on Saturday Night Live. And the fact that it teeters on the edge of spoof and caricature without slipping into it might make Get Out seem a lot better than it actually is. Yes, it finds certain truths in its updating of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets the Stepford Wives. And yes, perhaps in the new Trump era, there might be a slight added urgency to the material that wasn't there before. But Get Out knows better than to educate an audience. It's hip enough to know that probably everyone is going to accept the racist humor and that the most important things are keeping it rooted in the mechanics of genre filmmaking. 
It has also been so long since we've had a good, bracing horror movie that I think we're all a little happier and smug about the movie's success than we might otherwise be. But the movie also bravely suggests nothing is going to get better. It's a nihilistic and misanthropic movie, and that's what makes it work. If it started apologizing and making amends, it would have been considered a cop-out. It offers no bridge, no hope, no better world. And I think this is what audiences in Trump world are responding to, despite Moonlight's win at the Oscars. Get Out has made more money in its first three days than Moonlight has made in its entire theatrical run since it was released last November. Get Out's ghoulish horror fantasia will easily, for some viewers, trump Moonlight's quiet virtue-signaling earnestness. And that's okay. That's also the movie moment we're in. The best American horror movie I saw last year in 2016 was The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which opened last December. And I'm not including Karen Kasama's thriller The Imitation when I say this, because in this case, I'm talking about supernatural horror. And The Autopsy of Jane Doe is a very different experience compared to the comic topicality and hipness of Get Out. The Autopsy of Jane Doe is resolutely old-fashioned. It's like a short story from the glory days of mid-1970s Stephen King. A rainy night, a coroner and his medical technician son begin work on the pristine corpse of a beautiful young woman that was found half buried in a house where a bizarre mass murder has taken place. Who was she? What was she doing there? The sheriff needs the cause of death by the morning. Of course he does. And so the two men go to work on the girl in the deserted morgue on that rainy night. Such a beautifully simple setup, the kind of classic setup that the EC comics and later the Warren comics used to traffic in. And the tension escalates effortlessly, as does the creep factor, when the mystery of the corpse starts revealing itself as the coroners start making their internal examination and the clues start piling up. And then the night devolves into something delightfully scary because this so-called corpse can't be killed. In fact, it is revealed that many people have tried to over, yes, the last three centuries kill the damn thing. The autopsy of Jane Doe is not great. It's just a good, fast, 85-minute scare machine, and it has no message. It just wants to scare you, and in its simplicity and rigor, it reminded me somewhat of the teleplays of Amazing Stories and Masters of Horror, TV shows that our guest today, Mick Garris, helped write and produce and direct. Mick Garris, as a director, is notable for helming the most Stephen King adaptations of any director. He directed both miniseries of The Stand and The Shining. He's also the creator of the famous Showtime series Masters of Horror. In Hollywood, Mick Garris started out as a receptionist for George Lucas's newly formed company called the Star Wars Corporation in 1977, as well as working PR for AFCO Embassy. And this leads to a show Garris creates and hosts for the pay cable channel, The Z Channel, which was available here in L.A. from the early 70s on and where he interviewed pretty much everyone from John Landis to Steven Spielberg to John Carpenter and many others. And then Garrett started shooting behind the scenes, making of docs for everything from David Cronenberg's Scanners to Joe Dante's The Howling to John Carpenter's The Fog and The Thing and later Gremlins and The Goonies. And this ultimately led to Steven Spielberg hiring Garrett to be one of the writers as well as the story editor on Spielberg's anthology series Amazing Stories in 1985. And Garris also co-wrote scripts for HBO's anthology horror series, Tales from the Crypt. Garris also created Masters of Horror, another anthology show that ran for two seasons on Showtime, though only licensed by them and, and not produced. And he co-wrote the sequel to The Fly and the Stephen Summers remake of The Mummy. 
And then he became the main adapter of Stephen King after Garris directed one of King's original screenplays. This was Sleepwalkers, for anybody who remembers. And through that, he got the gigs for two epic miniseries, The Stand and The Shining, and later other King adaptations such as Desperation and Bag of Bones. And he was one of the executive producers on Angelina Jolie's World War II epic, Unbroken. And he has published numerous works of fiction, short stories, and novellas. And has said that his influences include everyone from Ray Bradbury to Richard Matheson to Raymond Chandler to James Elroy, John Irving, Joseph Heller, and, of course, Stephen King. Added note, he also played a zombie in Michael Jackson's thriller video directed by John Landis. And Mick Garris now has a new podcast here on Podcast One called Postmortem, where he interviews iconic horror cinema figures. And this season includes Rob Zombie, Karen Kusama, John Landis, and Joe Dante. Garris and King remade The Shining in the mid-90s as a six-hour miniseries for ABC television. And it's not a remake, but actually a filming of the novel. So the question, did The Shining really need to be remade as a six-hour miniseries for ABC is moot? Because Mick Garris and Stephen King have always stated that their version of The Shining was not a remake, but an actual filmed adaptation of the novel itself. Whereas the Stanley Kubrick movie, according to King bore zero resemblance to his novel. He intensely disliked Kubrick's approach, as well as Jack Nicholson's performance as the tormented caretaker one winter at the Overlook Hotel. The Shining was Kubrick's radical rethinking and alteration of the King novel from 1977, and Kubrick was drawn to it for a couple of reasons. Kubrick found it suited his needs as an accompaniment to a few of his main themes, the timelessness of evil, man as a murderer throughout eternity, But also Barry Lyndon, his masterpiece from 1975, had been a commercial disappointment, and Kubrick was hungry for a hit for Warner Brothers, and King was well on his way to becoming a huge best-selling writer. Kubrick might have loved animals and his daughters, but he was an amused nihilist, a very different temperament from King's humanism. Jack Torrance in King's novels, a much more tragic, likable man. And yet in some ways, the Kubrick approach is beneficial. The hotel itself, at one time the most expensive set ever built, is spectacular and unforgettable, and visually is a stunning movie. But I have seen The Shining numerous times, and it always, always strikes me as a problem movie. And it reveals that more often than not, in the later phase of his career, Kubrick didn't always know what he was aiming for. 2001 and Barry Lyndon might not be examples of this, but A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, definitely Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut are examples of this. Despite all the arduous planning, Kubrick had a somewhat organic approach to shooting a movie, and that's putting it lightly. Kubrick's famous planning is being debunked more often than not now, with many people saying they're not sure Kubrick even knew what he wanted on a set. And isn't that the reason a director does 80 to 100 takes of each scene, spends an actual year shooting the movie, and cares so little about continuity errors? There is a car visible in Barry Lyndon, for God's sake, traveling above a road behind Ryan O'Neill's head during a duel. And maybe Kubrick would ultimately try and find the movie in the editing room without fully knowing what he was looking for. He released at least four separate cuts of The Shining, two different cuts in America and two different cuts in Europe. Is it comedy or horror? Is it serious war movie or farce? Is it an honest adaptation of the Burgess novel? Or is it Kubrick flattering and placating young audiences in 1971 by perverting the meanings of the Burgess novel? And yet Kubrick's showmanship as a producer always impressed people with fancy art direction and set design and a years-in-the-making narrative. Kubrick, like most showmen, was really good at PR. 
I saw The Shining on Memorial Day weekend of 1980, where it had only opened in L.A. and New York before it opened wide later in June. I went to the 10 a.m. showing at the Village Theater in Westwood, and the theater was crowded but not packed. Though when I walked out of the theater after the movie was over at 12.30, there were massive crowds in Westwood and a line snaking twice around the block to get into the 1 o'clock show. I had read The Shining many times as a 13-year-old and was fascinated by it. I'll never forget the shock I felt when I came to the scene at the end of one chapter where we realized, yes, red rum is murder backwards. The topiary animals terrified me, and the setting as well as the family dynamic was entrancing. So I had been following the making of The Shining for a couple of years before it was released with considerable excitement. People forget this now, but it was one of the most expensive American pictures ever produced up until that point, and principal photography lasted for a year, and there was a ton of gossip and fascination about this project in the late 70s. I don't think there has ever been a movie in my lifetime that I felt such anticipation in seeing, and no one knew what it looked like. The trailer was a glorious piece of minimalism that had been running in theaters since December of 1979. The elevator banks and that tidal wave of blood, just that one shot, that's it, with the credits rolling over. There were no scenes available before that opening in May of 1980, just screenshots and magazine stories about the film. And gauging from those stills, the movie looked epic and terrifying. And yet, and yet, the movie was a primal disappointment. Not terrible at all, and certainly quite beautiful, but all the juice of the story had been drained, and we were left with a stately-paced epic with very few scares and just about all of the exciting set pieces in the novel excised. The soon-to-be-famous Steadicam shots looked amazing on that massive screen in the village, and there were great things in it, but it more often seemed lifeless and cold, and the humor in Jack Nicholson's performance seemed disconnected from the situation. The movie seemed both campy and solemn to me, a terrible combo. I watched it a number of other times that summer, increasingly fascinated by it, as I still am, but never convinced. Today I watch parts of it whenever I run across it. The pacing doesn't seem so glacial now, and the pain of the marriage, as well as the self-seriousness of Jack Torrance, the writer, seems funny at 52. And there are sequences that are masterful, especially the staircase sequence with Shelley Duvall swinging the bat after finding the all-work-and-no-play-makes-Jack-a-dull-boy manuscript, a genuinely terrifying moment both then and now. But the disappointment of The Shining has never left me, and I'm reminded of that initial viewing, one of the key movie-going experiences of my life, every time I watch it. The Stephen King novel was magical, or at least I considered it that at 13 and 14 and 15. The Stanley Kubrick movie was cold and adult and cryptic. The movie was considered a disappointment that summer, even though it did okay at the box office, but it took years for the reputation it has now to solidify. And I'm not sure about that reputation. Sometimes I have my doubts. Added note, Shelley Duvall never made another movie again because she was so traumatized by Kubrick and the length of the shoot. So Mick, before we get into why Stephen King disliked it and what his main problems with it were, as well as yours, what did you like about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining? Well, the cinematic elements of it are incredible and undeniably beautiful. Yes. Um, But when it came out, I saw it the Tuesday or Wednesday night before it opened uh, at a screening at Warner Brothers. And like you, it was the most anticipated movie of my life. Yeah. I loved that book with a passion. Mm -hmm. And the word passion may be key here because I didn't feel any of that passion in the movie. No. And people seem to forget. I mean... I love it as a Kubrick film now. Yes. But it's never been a great adaptation of King. 
And what I was missing was what felt personal to me. And what I learned later when Steve and I started working together was that what was personal to King was entirely missing from the movie. You know, it's about alcoholism. It's about being a parent and feeling the guilt of feeling anger towards your kid, make, hurting your child and carrying that burden of guilt, trying to be the good man about it. And uh, again, as you said, King's very warm. And Kubrick, this is not a criticism, no. more an observation, is very cool. Yes. And famously so. And I think all of his films uh, reflect that. So that was to me what was missing and again at the time the critics were pretty unanimous in their bashing of the film yeah um primarily i think too because david cronenberg once said to me the problem with the shining is that they cast the ending jack is a madman from the get-go right and there is no descent into hell well, that also ties in with something I said earlier, because I do think that, uh, especially in 2001, Kubrick's fascination with man as a murderer throughout the ages, the timelessness of evil, which certainly can apply to Kubrick's version of The Shining. I'm not so sure it was King's necessarily. And also, Kubrick has a woman problem. And he has, he. if you really want to look at all of his movies, maybe up until Eyes Wide Shut, he can be looked as a master misogynist. Don't want to make too much of a deal about that. He is certainly a man of his demo a man of his era. But there is something about the way that Shelley Duvall character is treated in that movie as a bit of a dish rag continually from pretty much scene one is something to mark down. It's just something to notice. And I think that um, the other problem is that if you had all that money that Kubrick had, and you have to remember that in 1979 dollars, 20 million was a lot of money. A lot of money. And so it, it seemed that with all of that money, he could have figured out a way to maybe do some of the more elaborate set pieces from the book. I know that he did try, or rumor has it, that he did try something with the topiary animals and it just looked terrible. And the, the, the money really, the technology wasn't there yet to do that properly. But let's get to the things that ultimately led you guys to make it 16 years later. The idea is, in order to get the rights back, didn't Kubrick have to be paid something like $1.5 million? Is exactly. That true? Exactly the right amount. Yeah. Oh, what uh, was that about? Um, he owned the rights to the book. Right. Okay. Uh, Warner Brothers did not own it. Kubrick owned it. And he was the producer as well as the director and co-writer of the film. So when King wanted to remake it, The Stand had been such a successful miniseries. Uh, according to ABC, the most successful of all time. That's right. I remember that. 50 million people a night and it went up. Yes. They went to King and said, what do you want to do next? And he had always thought, he imagined the idea of remaking The Shine. Not remaking it, as you said, but to actually shoot the book. And so the first process was to pay off Stanley Kubrick, who wanted a million and a half for the rights to King's own book. Mm -hmm. And he got it. And he got it. King wrote the script for he the did. minis for The Shining. Yeah. And uh, it's all it's it's going to go no matter what. I think Rebecca de Mornay was playing um, Wendy. Um, but you did have trouble ultimately casting yes. Jack Torrance of Jack Nichols role. And I guess with, you know. Understandably so, but who did you go to and who said, I'm not going to do this? Is there anyone that you remember particularly? The very first one, because I'd worked with Gary Sinise on the stand, and he was so terrific in that. He would have been fabulous as Jack Torrance. He would have been an amazing choice, and he's the first person I talked to, but unofficially, I said, would you be interested in playing Jack Torrance? And the very first thing he said, and I'd never even considered it in my naivete, was... 
I think I'd have a problem stepping into Jack's shoes, meaning Nicholson. And you know that the first line of every review is going to be so-and-so is no Jack Nicholson because enough time had passed for The Shining to become iconic. And everybody thought of it as a classic and Nicholson's performance as a classic. So Gary was the first one. And then there were offers all over the place. We talked to mainly British actors were the most interested and interesting. And we had actually gone with one. Um, and... Uh, Basically, he never, after agreeing to do the part, never showed up, never uh, responded. We kept trying to talk to his agent. So three days before shooting was to begin, we read Stephen Weber. Mm -hmm. And Rebecca... Rebecca had been cast. Steve had met her at the uh, at the TCA's, the Television Critics Association uh, Fest, when in Pasadena when we put out the stand, mm-hmm. and he said, "I've got something for you." And this three years later, uh, he offered her the part. So she was cast before anybody. Right. So she came in and read with Stephen Weber. Fortunately, I had never seen Wings, which I don't know if it's a good or bad show, right. but I would have thought of of Weber as a comedian as a comic actor and i couldn't imagine him as jack torrance i'd never seen it i'd seen other work he'd done he came in and read for king and me the casting director with rebecca and blew us away and it was phenomenal for me and i think he did an amazing job uh in in this especially because i didn't know he was acting in a sitcom i'd never seen what were the King adaptations when you look back on all of them? And not just the ones you did, but the ones sure. overall. And there have been so many. I mean, so most many. of the stuff has been been adapted. Though, At least once <clears> or twice. <laughs> but has The Talisman ever been adapted, the Peter Straub-King collaboration? I actually wrote a four-hour miniseries from The Talisman that I was going to direct. Um, uh, Spielberg's company, Amblin, developed it. It was going to be a feature. The um, it uh, at first they were going to go with my script and turn it into a feature script. Then they got another director involved. So for years they've been trying to make that uh, as a movie. Um, and the the miniseries, the four hour script, they said when they saw it well with King and Spielberg attached, we can't afford to do it. So um, they keep trying. I think it's still on track somewhere. I've not been involved in it, but they tried. It, it never happened. I, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to be on about the best cinematic adaptations of King. And as we said, there's been so many. Personally, I still think that maybe Brian De Palma's Carrie might be the best cinematic adaptation just because there seemed to be such a cinematic point of view to it. It was as much a King book as it was a De Palma movie. And for some reason with that story, letting that auteur get into the the pop trash myth of the Carrie White story, it just seemed to go together quite Oh, it gelled. Everything gelled on that. And and that's the first King novel to be published. And the movie made the novel successful. It didn't happen the other way around. And I think it's a great meeting of minds there. I think think De Palma and King in that case were spectacularly well-matched. And nobody had ever seen a movie like Carrie before. They'd seen teen horror movies, but never something that went – it was like – a grown-up view of what life was like in, at that age, 
and and it had gone places, starting within the showers, the girls' showers, and throwing dirty tampons at one another and plug it up, plug it up. You'd never seen a scene like that before. It was it was shocking, and you're riveted from the first moment. I'm also a big fan of the Dead Zone. I think Cronenberg's yeah did an amazing job of that. I think Misery's fantastic. Um, Stand by Me is is one of my favorites of all time too. I have to watch the Dead Zone again because I felt again underwhelmed by that in 1983 or 84, whenever that movie came out, because that was really my prime Stephen King period, roughly between Mm -hmm. Carrie and into the mid, probably to the Talisman. I would say those were my key years of King. And then, I don't know if I got older, I don't know if my interest in horror literature moved to another another direction, but I remember thinking that it just wasn't the book and – I've got to go back to it because I've only seen it once. We're talking about The Dead Zone. Because I had one of those delightful experiences of discovering something that I had never seen before. And I thought I had. I have never seen David Cronenberg's Shivers, his first movie. Which um, I was thinking, okay, whatever. I know I've seen a little bit of it. The apartment in Canada, yeah, okay. And some of the sexual diseases causing the parasites. And so I thought, look, it's, it, it looks so threadbare from what I remember <laughs> that I'm just going to give it maybe 20 minutes. And then I was riveted. It is a seamless, kind of a minimalist 19, mid-70s movie. It has a kind of mid-70s minimalism to it. And it's completely sustained, and it builds, and it grows. And I don't know what the budget on that was. Uh, I know we had, uh, we've had Ivan Reitman on the show before, and I talked mm-hmm. to him about that. I think it was about a half a million bucks. Well, that's not not insubstantial, is it? In no, and it, it, it looks that budget. It but yeah. it looks that budget, and it looks good. I can't yeah. explain it. It's there's something. It was amazing that Cronenberg already had the style set down, and that it, it was so assured for a first feature that um you know it's just one of those rare things that happens when you know I, I, there's another one that I want to talk about coming up that is the complete opposite of my um my response to Shivers, but um I also want to ask you something about The Shining. Um, Rodney Asher made a documentary about The Shining that I thought was fascinating. Not a lot of people have seen it, but uh, in it's called Room Two Three Seven, which refers to the room where Jack Nicholson uh, meets one of the ghosts of the Overlook and where Danny is supposedly attacked by the ghost, though it might have been Jack himself. Asher interviews um, a number of people about their reactions and their relationship with The Shining. And so we have a, we have a few different movies that are being discussed, along with a, a wide array of footage from the movie, uh, defending their interpretations. Uh, one thinks it's about the genocide of Native Americans. One thinks it's about Kubrick's apology for helping fake the moon landing. <laughs> and one thinks it's about the Holocaust and about a failed film project for Kubrick that never got made called the Aryan Papers, etc., etc. But what the movie... Really, and I know people have seen it, and, and they take it literally, right. and they think it's like, why would I watch this movie? This is ridiculous. The the shine is not about any of these things. But what the movie really is about is how we interpret, uh, how we all watch movies differently and that we interpret and respond uh, to them through our lens of experience. I mean, the individual's lens and not the lens of the mass audience. Asher, uh, the filmmaker, doesn't believe in these theories, but he does believe that we all have individual responses based on our personal beliefs about movies. 
And there are just things in this doc that deconstruct The Shining in kind of amazing ways that as a fan of, you know, a semi-fan of the novel and of your adaptation and the Kubrick movie, I don't know. Have you seen Room 237? I have. And Rodney and I were on a panel together <laughs> at the uh, Stanley Hotel where I shot The Shining and That's where right. King wrote the original book, where he conceived the original book and based it on. And so what do you think about this movie? This I, thought it was, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, it was loony. Yes. And so entertaining. And a lot of the examples that these people give to support their theories about what the movie was about were like, hey, I have to think about that a little bit from the carpet, from the, the mysterious the, window, the magical window, or was it the magical wall? Something. And, and Omen's the Calumet all, thing. The Minotaur, yeah. which goes back to Stanley Kubrick's first movie was released by Minotaur Productions. <laughs> right. It was like, oh, okay. That's and the sweater that Danny wears. With the you know, Apollo the, thing on it. Yeah, yeah. But, there was, but some of it was interesting. There was that sequence in Room 237 where someone uh, draws out what the shining, what the overlook would have looked like if it actually right. existed. And that there couldn't be windows there, walls there. Omen's office would not have had that, I guess, window in it. Right. And the window is like, in the Kubrick movie, like so many of the windows, it's blotted out with white and you really mm-hmm. don't know. There's no scenery behind it or whatever. So. Right. I don't know. I th- I look back at the movie and I think it's um well the movie is incredibly entertaining and it makes you think about each of these points of view and uh, understand there's a reason why people see through their own filter the, what they want to see and then there are things like well I wonder why he did that when the layout of the hotel for example you know it, you if you're shooting it on a sound stage, you want to blow out the window so that you don't see what's not out there. It's one technique of shooting it. And, you know, it, did he really think about what it would be or what's best for the scene and what looks best? I want to get back just a little bit more on um, Stephen King and The Shining and the disconnect between Stephen King's The Shining and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And again, we both talked about that earlier, that it has to do with vastly different artistic temperaments. But you and King seem to be a much better match. And the movie is much more, it's much more, it makes a lot more sense on an emotional level rather than than the Kubrick movie, which seems, as I said, very cryptic, very adult, very cold, very much about a man who has lost everything in this kind of a shell, which Kubrick during that period, whether it was Alex in Clockwork Orange or, you know, Redmond Barry in Barry Lyndon, was very interested in that kind of protagonist. And I think optimism right now, especially at my age, is very healthy and mm-hmm. that you, you, uh, you, as you get older, it's maybe the only way to kind of roll. And I detect very little pessimism in King, very little pessimism with you as a person or as an artist. You're genuine. And I think you guys both want to give pleasure. The bleakness of Kubrick's vision, as I said earlier, often hardens into nihilism. And his Disdain for mankind is evident in everything from Dr. Strangelove to 2001 to A Clockwork Orange to Barry Lyndon to The Shining and, and into Full Metal Jacket. And I think he seems to have moved somewhat away from that in the last movie of his career, the dream movie Eyes Wide Shut. But still, a career that is marked by pessimism about men and that they're failures and that their inability to connect. Stephen King isn't, and you aren't either. In the ending of the novel, The Shining, Halloran um, uh, and Wendy get married. Uh, yes, Scatman Crothers and Shelley Duvall would have tied the <laughs> knot if Kubrick had followed the book to its end. 
But it does, this idea of talking about it does bring up for me at least this idea, this um, aesthetic that I have somewhat embraced, um, that pessimism and horror go hand in hand. Maybe that's a little too simplistic, but certainly Rob Zombie, John Carpenter, Cronenberg, not known for their humanity necessarily. Well, it's also a freedom that you're not offered in other genres. You know, you can have a tell a horror tale that does not end happily, and it can still be successful in reaching its audience, whether it's artistically or commercially, that is not really offered in other genres. And I think that's one of the interesting, one of the reasons that you can go a little beyond. You can go in a very real world, take it to places that are unbelievable uh, in other circumstances if you weave your world realistically and believably and and with humanity the way King does. I also think there's sort of a classism to it as well in that King is very much from a working class background, as I am, and that struggle that he had, and he really was up against it. Before he sold Carrie, I mean, he was working in a laundry. He was just doing less than minimum wage work for a long time, really trying to make it. And I think that's also a part of where that humanity comes from, too. You know, he was raised by a single mother, as I was, and, you know, in in very, not very comfortable uh, financial circumstances. And I think there is that fight for a happy ending, whether it does end happily or not that's kind of in a battle with with the artistic freedom to be able to not have a happy ending. Santa Monica here in California in 1951, and after your parents divorced in the early 60s, you moved to the San Fernando Valley with your mother. I think I've pieced together that you kind of had two childhoods, and the earlier one was more economically stable than the latter, or is that not true? Your father you know, was a painter who didn't make money as a painter. No, he never, he, he studied art, but never made a living at it, probably never sold a painting in his life. So how did your parents make a living before the divorce? My father um, had worked at uh, Lockheed in the Valley, um, and I, I think he was doing blueprints and things like that. And shortly before they divorced, they both took real estate courses and started uh, in the real estate business. My father became successful at it. Um, not that I would have noticed. It happened after the divorce, and my mother was not. She drove a lunch truck, you know, very uh, until she remarried some years later. It was a very hard scrabble existence. I mean, we were working class, but we had a home in the San Fernando Valley that, you know, was comfortable, didn't know that we were lacking in anything and it was much tougher when we moved to san diego after the parents divorced and and living on the lunch truck and things like that uh, that did not last very long so yeah yeah but i also think and i and again um i could be totally wrong you're a boy becoming an adolescent in the 1960s yeah. and by the time you're entering uh your 20s the 1970s are happening too 
fascinating decades. Um, there is for many people, no matter how painful the circumstances are, and I can and I can attest to this as a child of the 1980s, that there is something magical, no matter what, about growing up in Southern California to a degree. There's a kind of freedom there that I still don't hear from other people who grew up in other places in the United States. Really, no matter you, it, Southern California was and may, might still be one of those places where you can live well for not that much. And this has come up time and time again on this podcast with people from Southern California, whether it was Brandon Boyd on um, talking about Calabasas or uh, Michael Tolkien. But what was your experience in that time? Because certainly in the 1960s, Los Angeles was pretty much the youth capital of the world, no matter what what economic class you were in. And teenagers, the new consumers, were gods. And boomers, you boomers, yeah, uh, caused the problems with everything, were lavish with so much attention. Hey, and wait, I think to- we saved the world. What- you're kind of talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah, some millennials who are carving the knives when they hear that. But um, but I'm just wondering, as someone who wasn't there, because I think we were about 15 years younger than you, what were the 60s like? In, in uh, I know you were you were fronting a band. You were you yeah. wanted to, you wanted to draw comic books. You were a very artistic kid, uh, and not a popular one until the band. Um, most of my teen years happened in San Diego County, or the East County, kind of the the Valley of San Diego, the San Fernando mm-hmm. Valley of San Diego. Um, you know, went to a two year school before going to San Diego State because we couldn't afford an education, basically. Um, so. I left Los Angeles when I was maybe 10 years old um, and then came back when I was 20 years old. And so uh, the time when I was in the band was an amazing, fantastic time. We didn't have any money. We did our recordings on our own and that sort of thing. But Southern California was a magical, and still is, I think, a magical place to be a creative person. And it's what people aspire to. You, I was lucky to be born where all of this stuff was taking place. Nobody in my family um, was in the movie business or television business or or made any living in the arts, any of that sort of thing. My grandmother actually made uh, dresses for Gail Storm and other people from Mm -hmm. the 50s um, when she was working for a dress designer. But there was no connection to that. So I never imagined it would be possible to do these things that I dreamed about when I was reading Famous Monsters magazine uh, in the again in the 60s, the early 60s, when I was truly a boy. But, you know, it, it just seemed like possibility was there. I didn't imagine it until I started doing it. But I'd written a dozen scripts before I ever sold one, but the first guy to buy one was Steven Spielberg. So, um, but it was a playground. I was not a popular kid at school at all, but I don't think most people who've made their living in the creative arts were. And no. I think that may have been a motivating factor is, you know, that that reach for having a voice worth listening to or a reach for popularity that you did never um, experience at that time. Ileana Douglas, as well as a critic Owen Gleiberman on this podcast, we're all roughly, um, roughly around the same age. Uh, talked about the importance in their young movie-going lives uh, of the drive-in theater as a mm-hmm. lasting influence on um, on their movie-going lives, and and they uh, you left the San Fernando, you left L.A. proper about ten years old, and they were probably for them as well as myself my first introduction to movies. 
I'm amazed looking back how permissive, as Alina Douglas and Owen Gleiberman said, about what their parents allowed us to see. Now, I know it was a much more permissive movie era for us when we were were coming of age. But I think that you said at one point that you had seen Psycho at a drive-in. Yeah. And that, to me, now seems like a pretty permissive thing. You must have been 10 or 11 when that movie was out. Exactly. Um, What kind of impact did that, that movie have on you? Massive. Massive. I mean, we, I actually wrote a little piece for a tribute to Robert Bach called Four in the Back, and it was about in our 1957 Chevy station wagon going to the Reseda Drive In, which is where Targets was shot. Mm, the I remember the Reseda Drive In, yes. We went there to see it, four kids, and yeah, I was 10, 11 years old, and uh, well, nine or 10 actually. And, um, to at the, at that time horror movies were thought of as movies for kids right and so here is this alfred hitchcock movie and hitchcock had made a name for himself on his tv series he was the avuncular very jolly kind of host he was funny and wry and so we all went and it was not what anybody expected and yet my parents never said, oh, we shouldn't have taken the kids there. Right. It was just different. That time. was what we did. It was a different time. We popped our own popcorn at home and, and brought our bubble up with us because we couldn't afford to get the stuff from the, uh, the snack bar. But it was all teasing. You know, the Mrs. Bates, Mrs. Bates, you touch her on the shoulder and then she creaks and turns around and you reveal that dead face of mother. <laughs> that we did it to our little sister constantly after that. So mm-hmm. it, who knew 30 years later I would be doing the prequel movie of yes, Psycho, Psycho 4. Psycho 4, I know. But, um, yeah, it, it had a big impact on me. And seeing it in a drive-in was a very unique and kind of intimate way of seeing it. Uh, slightly more intimate than watching it in uh, on television in the family living room or something, but still in a way where the family's all together and kind of talking to each other, which you couldn't do in a movie theater, um, and teasing one another. It, it was, there was a delight in that shocking horror that I'd not experienced before. I'd always loved the genre even before that as a child, but this was kind of a turning point. It was a new kind of horror I'd not seen before. Well, I was thinking about Psycho because you and I are both one of a number of talking heads in a new movie about the shower scene in Psycho called 7852, which will be released later this year. And that title refers to the number of cuts and setups that Hitchcock wanted for that shower sequence. Now, I was thinking about what would be allowable now in today's post-identity politics PC world. Would that shower scene have been allowable? Would the David Cronenberg masterpiece Dead Ringers be allowable? A little too misogynist. Would Brian De Palma's elaborate penchant for violence against women be allowable? Would the ending of Night of the Living Dead be allowable or automatically racist? Would Linda Blair be allowed to masturbate with a crucifix and the exorcist? Would it be allowable to beat the little boy on the altar and about to be shot by Gregory Peck in The Omen? Or is that just too much for kids? And there are countless other examples. But that shower scene in Psycho, would the fetishizing of this scene today be allowable in mainstream American movies or not? And why is this shower scene in Psycho the great divide, not really only in American horror films, but also in American cinema in general? It was the one big wall that got broken down for so many reasons. And I'm curious, what did you talk about when you were being interviewed? <laughs> I don't even remember. I don't remember what I, I don't remember either. what I was saying. But, you know, it, it was, I think it became fetishized and, and, and um, iconized, if that's a word, because... 
he went uh, Hitchcock went out of his way to do it in a different way. He had had a dummy built with that you could stab and it would spurt blood and do all these things. So it wasn't that you weren't allowed to do that in these movies, but he decided to take an art film approach to it. I think all of those things you mentioned would be allowed in independent film today. Correct. Those I think studio, studio movies, movies are right. Studio right. movies, you could never have right. a, a, a 12-year-old masturbating with a crucifix right. with blood flying everywhere. Yeah. But I was uh, on the jury in Sitches last October, and I there were 30 horror movies to sit through during that. And every kind of whatever you could define kind as yes. misogynism or, or just sadism or yeah. anything, all bets are off. Right. And all even, bets are to, off yeah. even to an extent with the autopsy of Jane Doe, mm-hmm. which you know is fairly extreme. Yes. And so I think that's why it's so healthy that there is an independent film world, you know, for better or for worse, um, because the the tendency to self censor in in network television, true, in in theatrical movies through a movie studio that have to be so much more chaste in their approach. Um, I, I think that's an important thing to have. I mean, I'm not, I don't believe in misogynism. I don't believe in sadism. I don't believe in the the rending of children. Right. But I believe in the right for an artist to create that for us. Yes. And, and so those are important things to have. So I agree with your premise about them not being allowed in mainstream, mainstream movies. Right. But I do think we have the option, especially with all of the delivery forms of, of uh, entertainment now, to choose those things. Well, I was thinking when I was talking to the Psycho guys, uh, the documentary, was that we'd never seen a murder like that before in American pictures. We had never slowed a movie down and then watched someone get slaughtered in that way. That was really the first time that happened. And it kind of did open the door to that, Mm -hmm. of murder as mass entertainment in a way. And it really did pave the way for an entire world of where murder and killing was... Herschel Gordon Lewis and that was the raison d'etre was was the murder. Uh, and also just the idea that this that psycho really does seem to be a movie that was built around an event that right. was built around right. the murder because really the build up to psycho uh, to the shower scene is really quite remarkable and amazing, amazing. the second half I don't know yes there's a stabbing on the stairs and there's a shock ending of that but you know it seemed like Hitchcock kind of came and he had <laughs> orgasm and now like what am I going to do I got to wrap this thing murder, up murder and then it was all um, and you know you can see the tricks everywhere in that movie how you know how important it seemed to Hitchcock because I'm always noticing how you know Marion can't see the face of Anthony Perkins because of how it's lit and it's already been established that that is one of the most brightly lit bathrooms in the <laughs> yeah. history of film yeah. and so there's trick after trick after trick in that th- in in that sequence and that seems to be, you know, the reason for why that movie exists in so many ways, even though it is a great film. It's a great film, and, and it was the first of its kind, you know, yeah. and the choice to make it in black and white. Almost all features in those days, they were trying to make them in color, and it was his choice to to do it that way. Um, and he used his TV crew to do it. Um, and, but... 
the decision, I think, which Saul Bass takes credit for, and, and my producer on Psycho 4 was the first AD for Hitchcock on the first Psycho, and he was furious that Saul Bass took credit for, for shot listing and outlining and creating that shower scene because Hilton Green was there, and he said, this was absolutely Mr. Hitchcock's choice. It was always very formal about Hitchcock. So um, it was very much, he wanted to do something differently and yes, that was definitely the centerpiece of that movie. You could tell that that's where all of the Viagra went. Yeah. I watched Wes Craven's Last House on the Left from 1972 the other night. I thought I had seen it because I had seen the remake seven or eight years ago when it came out, which I liked a lot, much to the consternation of my friend Eli Roth, who really <laughs> took me to task for liking the remake as much as I did. He loathed it. I thought it was kind of beautiful. But I had not seen the notorious Wes Craven version that was considered so shocking in 1972 when it came out. And I initially thought as I turned it on that this, you know, it had an early 70s graininess and I was preparing myself for something truly sordid. But the movie itself is really, I thought, kind of terrible and not scary and only upsetting because it's so clumsy. It's like an early 70s John Waters film, though not nearly as outrageous or funny and I was kind of surprised that it had this hardcore reputation. My boyfriend walked into the bedroom while I was watching it and he stayed for a few minutes and turned to me and said, what is this? This is terrible. And then after it was over, I came into the living room and he asked me as someone who's not a horror fan, he's not a horror fan at all, and I had just shown him, as I'm sure you heard on the Owen Gleiberman episode, I had just shown him the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which he had never seen and he loved, flipped for it, thought it was a work of art and he does not like horror movies and so he asked me something as i was in the kitchen he said how was that so bad and why was the texas chainsaw massacre so great kind of a weird question and does it even make sense and, and I, I guess they were kind of made within a couple of years of each other <laughs> both shot on 16 millimeter and the whole well uh, one aspect. one definitely with a control and a command right. of cinematic language that the other one just simply did not possess but this question has haunted me because is it because texas chainsaw Ma- massacre is totally serious and committed to its horror and last house on the left seems like a provocation a kind of a deliberate outrage almost an academic exercise in how to construct an exploitation film, even though it was based on an Ingmar Bergman movie. Mm-hmm. But they were made within a couple of years of each other, and they both have considerable reputations. But why is Toby Hooper's film a work of art and Wes Craven's is not? And the other question is this. Did Wes Craven ever truly believe in the horror film, or was it always kind of an exercise for him, the professor kind of deconstructing what scares audiences, because his taste really did, in very savvy commercial ways, move with the audience as he moved throughout the 80s and into the 90s. And I think there's a very telling moment uh, in uh, in a podcast interview I did with Alexandra Aja, who mm-hmm. remade Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. And again, maybe blasphemy, but I prefer that remake as well, <laughs> as did Craven, by the way. Craven preferred that as yeah. well and Thank was you. never happy with The Hills Have Eyes. When Aja wanted to push the horror elements into a hardcore way, Craven stopped him and told Aja that we'll lose the audience. You're going too far. We can't show this. And... Craven was also afraid that there would be copycats, criminals out there who would be enacting some of the stuff mm-hmm. that Aja wanted to do. Your thoughts about Craven overall? Well, Wes was a friend, and I think he was a wonderful guy, and I feel like he was 
locked-in horror jail, which a lot of the genre filmmakers, myself included, if you have some success within that genre, you're rarely let out. And then when he made his Meryl Streep movie about violin, um, it was a disaster. And so but was it pe- good? It's up the music to the viewer. Of whatever. Yeah, yeah, music of the heart. I think yeah, it was yeah. called. Yeah, um, it's a good one of those movies, uh, I guess. But it, it did not fare well either commercially or critically. Wes was a very talented guy. He was a novelist as well, but he was a teacher, and so yeah. there. I think your point is a really good one that he was seeing it as working out a way to approach something and to to approach an audience. I know re- he respected everything that he did. Um, it was not a crass or, dare I say, craven move to do uh, horror films because they're commercial, but it was what he was allowed to do. I think A Nightmare on Elm Street was groundbreaking. Yes. Uh, and I think he was a, a really brilliant man, a really kind man, yes. a very imaginative man who could have done even more wonderful things if he were not felt if he didn't feel like he were in a straight jacket. But I think that's the case with a lot of people. But as to the original Last House on the left, movies aren't made forever. They're made of and for their time. So to judge it from the perspective of 50 years later, I think is a very difficult move to make. And Chainsaw has withstood, uh, withstood the the path of time because it's great on so many levels. You have a heroine that you can identify with and you think you're seeing just the title alone is so horrifying. You're afraid of what you can see. Then it starts out and it's this beautifully shot but grainy 16 millimeter blow up that every every shot is composed so beautifully you don't recognize any of the faces in this movie. They're all new to you from Marilyn Burns to whomever to Gunnar Hansen. And um, the, you think anything can happen. My God, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is nasty. There's very little blood and really True. no physical violence that you see. The ugliness of Last House on the Left, the rape and the, the just it's the visual uh, appeal of it. They're working on very different levels. Wes, I think, was a writer first. And Toby is a visualist first. You know, there are two different ways to make movies, and the best ones combine both. And when Toby's given a good script, he makes great movies. And if he's not given a good script, it's only as good as the script. Whereas Wes would approach things more from a storytelling attitude and not quite so much in visually imagining how he could, in a surreal or or super real sense, imagine. Uh, illustrated cinematically. The language of cinema was simpler for Wes than it was. And yet, something like Nightmare on Elm Street was this vastly original thing, but you're not thinking about the composition of shots and the the build of tension in the way that Toby Hooper would, who, you know, he he did two of the Masters of Horror, uh, Toby did. And he was like a 25-year-old filmmaker. What's the way I can do this in an original and unique way? He always watched movies and kept evolving, evolving and learning. And he was as good as the screenplay was. So you can see what's him and what's Spielberg in Poltergeist. Poltergeist and right. you can see what's him uh, in you know Space Vampires or Life Force. Right. Um, so I, I think there are different approaches, and it's really difficult to say, I just first saw a 1972 movie today, and it sucked. If you saw it, as I did in the drive-in in 1972, it was harrowing. Um, 
but it was also something that has been um, imitated and poorly. You know, I, I don't think it's a great movie, and even at the time I didn't love it, but it had an impact that I think the 40 years since, 45 years since, has, has kind of sanded the edges off of. If the horror film is always a reflection of society's fears, as it clearly was in the 50s, and I guess Get Out is a potent example of today. And, you know, I was thinking about Rosemary's Baby leads to The Exorcist and The Omen and Carrie, which lead to teenagers being slashed to death for a decade in the 80s. It seemed like the secret history of boomers taking the revenge on the spawn <laughs> they created was the movie narrative that I grew up with in the 70s and 80s. And, of course, looking back, you know, you grew up on uh, the Universal Classics on TV and the sci-fi horrors of the 50s and 60s. But do you track the history of horror as a mirror to society or are the best horror movies simply timeless or are they a combination of the two i don't know why this has been on my mind lately and i think i think a lot of it had to do with seeing get out but i don't know do you do you agree with this well i agree to to a certain extent but i think a good movie is going to be a good movie regardless uh, i think it doesn't have to reflect its time but it usually does for commercial reasons how why it gets greenlit in the first place but the popularity of horror films always goes way up during times of political and social strife. Um, I think we're going to get a whole bunch of great movies in the age of Trump. Mm-hmm. For example, in the 80s, independent horror started in 1978 by John Carpenter's Halloween showed you don't need movie stars. You don't need uh, a big budget. You just need an idea. You need tension, suspense, kills, and that's what led to the glut of the 80s slashers, which was you could put a different title on any one of them. They're the same movie, basically. So I don't think that was so much a reflection of a political or social upheaval or unrest so much as we can make movies cheaply and people will always come and we can make money off of it. If it makes $3 million on a $200,000 investment, we are rich. And So I think there's that era and in a way that's happening in the streaming world but nobody makes money off of it right right. you know well you you had your experience with the canyons Mm -hmm, um, which is not a genre film but still this was something that mainly was made for a streaming audience ultimately or ended up that way and you discover that if you don't have a theatrical or sell it to a network or a netflix or somebody like that if you're doing vod you're going to live or die on that so a lot of movies, I mean, more movies than ever get made because the tools are available to everyone. And so that, I think, is as much a motivating factor as the as your premise, um, that, that people have the tools and everybody can make it. And maybe you get It Follows, which becomes a huge success with no names, or, uh, but with a canny um, ad campaign and uh, attention. There's a director who had a very developed style with his first movie, yes. and it stood out. So, you know, I think a lot of it has to do the time we're living in, but a lot of it also has to do with a good, well-told story. If it connects with an audience, that influences what is to come. You once said uh, in a time long, long ago that you were not interested in TV storytelling yeah. and that you preferred movies. And I was with yeah. you on that until recently. <laughs> I was with me on that until recently. Too. So that has changed for you the last few years because it Definitely. has for me. But, you know, I would say the opposite now. I see very little in the 
in the cinemas that I like. The more the more a movie costs, usually the less I like it. Correct. And there's such good stuff being made for television. Well, I think that must have been one of the reasons having that idea about, you know, movies versus TV and preferring movies that kind of led to uh, Masters of Horror in a way. Uh, The the TV anthology is a separate entity. You don't have to spread it out over three or four years. And you're just making mini movies for 24. And that must have been why you felt so ultimately creatively okay with that rather than working on, I don't know, like Murphy Brown or Dallas right. or something like that. Well, I, I didn't watch those shows. You know, it, it wasn't interest, interesting to me. Um, I, I always preferred anthologies because it was a mini movie. In the case of Masters of Horror, the most creatively rewarding experience of my life yes. and many of the other filmmakers because not only was it an anthology, but unlike Twilight Zone or Tales from the Crypt, each of them had its own personality. The intent was to bring in a great filmmaker, a recognized filmmaker within the genre. Say, we don't have much time, we don't have much money, but this is your movie, and you have complete creative control. And it worked. And that's what made Masters of Horror. If you liked it, that's why. And the ones you like, you know, everybody in an anthology, everybody has some they like, some they don't like. But we had a pretty good batting average with some people who had not had that freedom in decades like Carpenter and Toby and people like that. Are there any recent horror movies besides It Follows that you've liked a lot in the last, I don't know, five years? I find it, I don't know whether it's age or whether it's that there's there was a glut of kind of Blumhouse movies. And I say that I'm friends with Jason Blum. It's not yeah. about, I'm not, but there, you know what I'm saying, a kind of movie that uh, I guess a lot of them are boo movies where a mm-hmm. lot of the scares are orchestrated by sound effects and mm-hmm. shot cutting that just drives me crazy. There were one or two early on in Get Out that I thought were totally cheap shots. But in their context, they worked because you're in on it with them. Yes. So is there anything you would recommend that maybe the listener has not heard of that's not on their radar? Well, you know, you mentioned The Invitation earlier, uh, and it doesn't count because it's not (laughs) supernatural, but that's my favorite genre film of last year. I, I love it with a passion. I agree. And I have talked about it many times on this podcast, yeah. and I've had Karen on this podcast. Yeah, she was on mine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's just something about that movie that, um, I don't know, there was something about it when I saw it, when it first came out last April, that seemed to be speaking to, inadvertently, what I felt was going on in the country in this moment. And even more so now when you see, um, and I'm not going to give anything away, but when you see that vast landscape with all the red lamps out there and oh, they're standing yeah. on top of yeah. that. The la- next time I saw that, it was chilling. And I, and I really did. I don't, I, I don't want to take away from the invitation anything because it is just kind of a, a really, really well-made genre movie and yeah. exercise in genre. But it so resonated because it seemed to be about where we were right now. The fights friends were having, the conversations, the divisiveness uh, that was oh, going on. Oh, the passion the about a philosophy that they want you to join into. Yes. Yeah. And now and now it seems even more timely than ever. So if anyone has not seen The Invitation, we both really recommend it. And finally, something that I ask uh, people who are involved in uh, this genre, and I say this genre being you are well known for being a horror aficionado um i don't know if i've ever read this anywhere if you 
could look back on the history of horror, what are, I don't know, the three or four most disturbing deaths or horror images that have stayed with you throughout all of these years? What are the things that really you go back to and say, I can't get that out of my mind. That has stayed with me. I mean, I... Is there is there one or two that you well the hammer Dracula um, the the demise of Dracula was pretty spectacular and and has stuck in my head since I was a kid when I saw it as far as disturbing David Cronenberg you mentioned Dead Ringers yes. earlier that to me I think that's his masterpiece I agree I think it's an amazing piece of work it's incredible just the tray of of medical instruments to operate on mutant women are brilliant and brilliantly conceived the art direction and the like and it's not the deaths nearly so much as just the descent whether it's Jack Torrance's descent into madness or the mantle twins of Dead Ringers and their descent into madness but knowing that we're all walking on a precipice and that it can go easily whether you know targets is great based on the charles starkweather shootings you know in mm-hmm. in in texas um tony perkins in in psycho the original psycho uh, i mean when it happens when real people or people you believe are real um they provide me much more to be afraid of than than monsters or supernatural you know i I'm, I'm not much afraid of the supernatural although i love it when you convince me as the exorcist or the omen did or even well uh, jane doe i think is an excellent example of the supernatural in a hypernatural situation and it's not the death so much as as the accoutrements around it but the people behind them Woo! <laughs> 